We're in the book of Zephaniah this week. Um, again, real quick historical recap of where we are. We've been going through them chronologically. Last week we talked about the book of Nahum, who prophesied during the middle 600s, uh, middle of the 7th century B.C. During that time, that was after the northern kingdom Israel had been taken into exile, had been wiped off the map by Assyria. At this point in time, Judah is this tiny little holdout in the Middle East because the Assyrian Empire is kind of swept over even into Egypt. In the book of Nahum, we read about how God is the God of justice and the God of peace, and He will not allow uh, His enemies um, to succeed. In fact, He is control. And it was a comfort. It was, uh, it was a harsh prophecy given to Judah, but it was harsh concerning the Assyrians, saying Assyria uh, won't win. And so this week we pick up in Zephaniah, and Zephaniah, during the, the time of Nahum's prophecy, Manasseh was the king of Judah. And if you're not familiar with Manasseh, he's kind of one of the bad guys in the Old Testament. Um, he reigned from 687 to 642, and uh, his son reigned for two years after that, and his son's reign was much like his. His son's name was Ammon. And Zephaniah really prophesied during most likely the very end, possibly the end of Manasseh's rule, but mostly, as the first uh, verse of the text tells us, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So he's prophesying during Josiah's reign, which is um, 640 through 609. Um, and Manasseh's reign before Josiah, again during the prophecy of uh, we know from Second Second Kings twenty one, Second Chronicles thirty three, Manasseh introduced all kinds of idol worship into Israel and led the whole nation into idolatry. He brought Baal into the Lord's temple. He brought Asherah, which was a goddess, into the Lord's temple. He sacrificed. He performed child sacrifice in God's temple. Um, most likely, what accompanied Baal worship and Asherah worship was sacred prostitution. So most likely, that happened in the temple. And Manasseh led the whole kingdom of Judah into this kind of idol worship. And then his son does it for two years, and then Josiah comes to the reign uh, to the throne in 640. And uh, Josiah is eight years old when he comes to the throne, and um, he, d- he is a man after God's heart, and he follows the Lord. And in 622, he's rebuilding the temple and resetting up the temple. And things had gotten so bad under Manasseh that they actually didn't have the book of the law, which is most likely the Pentateuch. And so when Josiah is actually getting the temple back the way it was supposed to be, they actually discover the book of the law again for the first time. And Josiah introduces religious reform into Judah. And so Zephaniah is prophesying in this context during Josiah's reign. Judah had been involved in deep, serious, egregious idolatry. And Josiah is trying to bring reform to the nation of Judah. So I'm going to read the first 13 verses And then we're going to look at that chapter 3 towards the end. This is the Word of God. Oh, one more thing before we get in there. During Zephaniah, there's one theme I just kind of want to address right on the the front end. Um, There's this theme of the day of the Lord. We're not going to read all the verses, but actually verse 15, um, uh, verse 14, right after we end, the great day of the Lord is near. Verse 15, a day of wrath is that day, a day of ruin, a day of darkness, a day of clouds. So there's this notion about this day coming called the day of the Lord. And when you read the Old Testament, we've already encountered this kind of language, day of the Lord, in Amos. And in Amos, the day of the Lord was in reference to the judgment that would come to Assyria, I mean, that would come to Israel in 722, if you're keeping track of all those dates. Um, 
In Isaiah 13, the day of the Lord is used to refer to the destruction of Babylon. In Obadiah 15, the day of the Lord is used to refer to uh, the destruction of Edom. So sometimes we think the day of the Lord and we make it this one, we, have, we, we might have the tendency to make it this kind of one moment in history, but in reality, several days of the Lord's occur all throughout the Old Testament. And the mark of the day of the Lord really is God just shows up in a powerful way. It's predicted and God shows up in a powerful way. In a lot of ways, the day of the Lord is often, um, he, when he visits, it usually comes with judgment. And maybe the best way to think about all these day of the Lords that occur in the Old Testament is they are real judgments on real people, but at the same time, they're not the full final manifestation of the judgment. They're, in a sense, advertisements of the final judgment. So they're both real, but they're not the full realization of the day of the Lord. So I want to throw that out there, kind of give that to you as a tool for understanding Zephaniah, but also a lot of the Old Testament, and um, hopefully helpful in reading Scripture. This is the Word of God. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. Hezekiah's great-great-grandfather, by the way, was the king when Jerusalem was being sieged by Assyria in 701. Um, This is the word of God. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away birds and heavens, fish of the sea, rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who arraign themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold, those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. What he's doing is he's referring to areas in Jerusalem. He's saying... It's, uh, a wail will be heard all throughout Jerusalem. That's what those references are. For all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. All that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods will, shall be plundered, their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, these prophecies are hard to understand. And they're hard for me to study. And they're hard to figure out. And they seem to also bring very hard messages. I pray now that you would open our eyes and you would open our hearts to your word, dear Lord. That your Holy Spirit would teach us that we would not be afraid to encounter the holiness of God. In your name we pray, dear God. Please come teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, several years ago when I was an RUF intern at the University of Tennessee, Trey's fixing to embark on the internship, um, my first year there, um, I'm an Alabama fan. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, Tennessee. Alabama and Tennessee people don't necessarily get along. Not on the best of terms. It's a pretty big rivalry. My first year there, though, I had to figure out how I was going to live in volunteer country. 
This is a big issue for me, obviously. And um, early on, several students had tickets to actually the Florida-Tennessee game that was being played in Gainesville. And I thought, you know, it's a good time to hang out with students. Road trip's a good way to get to know people. You know, I'm going to do this. And they said, well, you can come. we got four tickets, so we, and we've got one more. But there's a condition. And the condition was this. They wanted to spell Vols on their chest <laughs> and try to get on ESPN. And so they needed a V. And uh, trying to, you know, die to self and serve other people, I died to my Alabama idolatry, or I tried to. And I painted myself up orange, drove to Gainesville, wore a white V, the rest of my body completely orange, and stood in the stands at the Tennessee-Florida game. One of the more shameful moments as an Alabama fan. Um, I say that to point this out. (laughs) I painted myself orange and had a white V on my chest, but I wasn't a Tennessee fan. I was still an Alabama fan. My heart's still with Alabama. And what, look, what I looked like on the outside was actually not who I was on the inside. I was a Tennessee fan in appearance only. I was a Tennessee fan in paint only. And I say that because Judah at this point in time is similar to their situation. In a lot of ways, they're God's people in name only, but not in their hearts. They've chased after these idols. They've chased after... Um, uh, all kinds of things. Economic stability is one of the things they're constantly uh, an idol that's always held out. Uh, injustice. But they've chased after everything but God. And so while they're Judah and they're God's people and they're that mission organization that they were supposed to be in name, in their hearts, they weren't God's people. And in a lot of ways, that's true of a lot of our life is that we bear this name Christian, we live in the South, and we even talk about it, how we're in the Bible Belt and everybody's a Christian here, you know? And we all bear that name, but in our hearts, if we're honest with ourselves, our day-to-day actions rarely are concerned with the Lord. We rarely live for His glory. Oftentimes, there's a very big disconnect between what we say about ourselves and what we think and what we hope is our theology and then the way we actually live because most of the day we're really just mostly concerned with our own security and safety whatever anxieties and fears we're trying to avoid. You know, we profess one thing, but oftentimes we live another. There's a disconnect. And maybe, in fact, most of our religious life is born out of an attempt to kind of appease this ambiguous, distant deity by doing some spiritual stuff, and then the rest of the time, we just do what we want to do. In a lot of ways, we're in danger of being God's people in name only, but not in our hearts. And that's really what Zephaniah has come to deal with in Judah at this point in time. And he's really really dealing with Judah in this regard. He's dealing with what I call practical godlessness. In title and in name, they're Christians, but in practice, they're godless. In practice, they're godless. And tonight, we're going to look at three different things about practical godlessness or practical atheism. The marks of it, the results of it, and the solution to it. The marks of practical godlessness, the results of practical godlessness, and the solution to practical godlessness. First, the marks of practical godlessness. We already talked about it earlier. The first mark is idolatry. In those first verses, verses 4 through 6, God begins to uh, recount why he's bringing judgment to Judah. I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
I'll cut them off from this place. I'll cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, the Baal worshippers. The name I will cut off the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priests. I'll wipe them away in such a way that people won't even remember who they are. Those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of the heavens. These are people who worship the stars, different kind of astral religions. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord, but when they're swearing to the Lord, are actually swearing to something else. Those who have turned back from following the Lord. Those who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. See, Zephaniah is speaking in this country that's rife with idolatry in which Manasseh has brought idols into God's temple, into the unique place. You see, the temple is not just First Pres or First Baptist. The temple was the central place where God's people gathered, where God, that God built and had, gave them specifications, said, this is the place where I reside among my people. What happened in Israel is ten times more egregious, a thousand times more egregious than Sinclair Ferguson setting up an idol in First Pres and saying, this Sunday morning, we're going to sing some songs to God, and then we're going to sing some songs to this idol. It's ten times more egregious than child sacrifice happening at First Baptist on Sunday morning. It's much further, much bigger, much more beyond that. That's what's going on in Israel at this point in time. Is the sin of idolatry. And hence the reason for God's judgment here and why He's justified and what He's going to do. Now the form of idolatry that took place in their time was this. is the worship and the sacrifice that they made to wooden statues, to stars, to whatever it was, to these created gods, to unbiblical deities. The question then is, why would they do that? Because we're sophisticated, we're post-enlightenment, we're science, uh, we're, we're informed by the sciences and all that kind of stuff. Why would they do things like that? Because it seems it's very clearly ridiculous to us. Well, most of their concerns uh, for their well-being as a people were centered around productivity, about being militarily strong, and agriculturally and economically strong. That's what it meant to be a successful and glorious nation at that point in time. And so in pursuit of these goals, this is what they did. They paid homage and they provided sacrifices. They worshipped the idols that they believed would produce those goals for them. An idol is just anything that rules our behavior. An idol is anything that we serve in order to get anything other than God. An idol is what rules our behavior. A Christian counselor, David Pallison, said it this way. He points out at the end of 1 John 5.21, way on down the road in the New Testament. John writes this letter about vital fellowship with Jesus, this amazing letter about what it means to be in Jesus, what it means to love, and all this kind of stuff. And at the end of the letter, 1 John 5.21, he ends the whole letter with this. Beloved children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. He's not writing into idol-worshiping Israel at this point in time. He's writing to the church. And so sometimes commentators look at that and they're like, why does John add that in the first century to the, when, in his letter to the church? Some people think it's just an addition. Some people think it's a mistake. It's a cultural reference to something we don't know he's talking about. This is what Pallison said. John's last line properly leaves us with the most basic question which God continually poses to each human heart. Has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's trust? Preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, delight. It is a question bearing on the immediate motivation for one's behavior, thoughts, and feelings. In the Bible's conceptualization, the motivation question is the lordship question. Who or what rules your behavior? 
See, we don't see anybody worshiping images or worshiping idols today. But John recognizes that that issue of idolatry is still pressing. What rules your heart? What rules your behavior? What drives you? See, it's not just the actions that God looks at. It's also the heart. So begin to apply this. Begin to work this out in our own lives. The first application is we absolutely have to answer these kinds of questions. What gets you angry? What gets you angry? When the thing you love is threatened, you get angry. It reveals what your heart is attached to. What makes you worry? What what makes you fearful? Where does the anxiety come from in your life? Why does it come in those areas? Tease those out. Ask those questions. Why does it come? Why does it come in this area? Why am I fearful when I walk in this room on Tuesday night because I don't know anybody or I know a lot of people or I, but I don't feel socially comfortable and I feel anxious in here? Why? Why is that? Because we need the affection of people, right? Because our idol is keeping everybody happy with us and feeling like we're socially comfortable. What makes you despondent? What makes you hate yourself? What do you have to have or what do you hope to have in order to make you happy, comfortable with who you are, feel in control, maybe just to feel necessary, maybe to feel beautiful, maybe to feel productive, maybe to feel moral? What is it that you have to have? We can ask those questions all night. And the list goes on and Calvin calls our heart, John Calvin calls our heart an idol factory. Our heart has the capacity to create very subtle idols out of almost anything. And the book of Zephaniah is a stern warning against idolatry. And so it is pressing for us to continually ask the why question in our lives. Why? Why? Why do we do these things? Because the manifestation of the day of the Lord is still going to come. And Jesus continues to warn uh, in the New Testament about the imminence of judgment. And so I implore you in this text requires that we ask our heart the why questions of our behavior and the why questions of our words. And when we answer those questions, don't give yourself the benefit of the doubt. Assume that you still don't understand the depth of your idolatry. What do you worship? What hope, what idea, what person, what fear do you sacrifice your resources to? See, we still give sacrifices. Our sacrifices are our time, our energy, our emotional and physical energy, the things that we have. What do you give your life over to? Let me give one practical examination, one practical situation to help you kind of examine your own life. In the New Testament, in the Old Testament, um, people gathered together on Saturday. It was the last day of creation. It was the day that God rested. And they, uh, God's people gathered together on the Sabbath and rested and spent time in worship. In the New Testament, Jesus died on a Friday and he rose again on a Sunday. And in the New Testament, people began to gather on Sunday. And they gathered because Sunday was the day of resurrection. It was the day that people gathered together and remembered the resurrection, that both Jesus' resurrection, but also looking forward to the resurrection of all those who are in Him. It is the sweetest day of the week. The Sunday is not this like heavy burden, like, oh my gosh, it's just one of those things you have to do as a Christian. Y'all, it's the day where we celebrate everything being made right again. Our bodies fixed, our, our morality fixed, the world fixed, creation fixed. All that is wrong is made right again. And on Sundays, God's people gather together and we're reminded of those promises and we sing about it. What draws you away from that on Sunday? It's the most delightful part of the week. It should be for us, right? It's the place where we're reminded everything's going to be made right. What draws you away from it? My guess is you have good reasons what draws you away from it. Whatever it is, you know, 
You spent time with a lot of friends late on Saturday night, right? You have a test on Monday you've got to do well. You probably had legit reasons and more reasons than that, right? Okay, now those reasons are legit and they sound good. Now you understand the grip that idolatry has on us. We have to ask our heart. We have to ask, ask your friends. And we have to ask, especially of Scripture, the why question to our words and actions. What is the big deal to you? What is the thing that's the biggest deal to you? And what Zephaniah has come to saying is the day of judgment is always imminent. The first mark of godlessness is idolatry. The second one in Zephaniah is arrogance. See, the judgment was coming to to God's people because of their idol worship, but they were bound in their idol worship, unwilling to see through it because of their arrogance. And arrogance is really this. It's an ungrounded confidence or security. It's an ungrounded confidence or security. And Zephaniah portrays it in all sorts of ways, and he really portrays it, I think there are kind of two ways we can summarize it. Summarize it. An ungrounded confidence or security because of your perceived ability to be a successful person in this world. An ungrounded confidence or security rooted in your perceived ability to be successful in this world. Another way to say it is you overestimate yourself. You overestimate yourself. You see, when he begins to talk about the judgment, he says their goods shall be plundered, their houses laid waste. This is one thirteen. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. So they create these institutions, they create these things, they create this wealth to rest in, but they're not going to have them. But they think those places will be places of rest. Verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. The things they rest in for deliverance won't deliver them. Your ability to be a successful person in this world will not deliver you. Uh, and two one, excuse me, two fifteen. In chapter two, he actually goes through and he pronounces judgment on all the nations surrounding Judah and then Judah itself. And in two fifteen, he actually goes to Nineveh, the city we talked about last week. He says, "This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in their hearts, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become! The great city of Nineveh." I am, but no one else. You see, <clears throat> their territory, their accomplishments, their success, their ability to be successful in this world and in this life provided nothing for them, provided no sound security, no sound confidence. One application for this is, is this. <clears throat> this believing in yourself stuff is crap. The way G.K. Chesterton says it is this. If a man believes in himself, he will most certainly fail. Complete self-confidence is not merely a sin. Complete self-confidence is a weakness. Believing utterly in oneself is a hysterical and superstitious belief. Really, believing yourself, I hope that's not your hope. I pray that's not your hope. Your ability to be successful in this life. Arrogance can be an ungrounded confidence or security in your perceived ability to be successful in this life. But it also is this. It's an ungrounded confidence or security resulting from complacent thoughts about God. So it's either you overestimate yourself or actually you just underestimate God as another form of arrogance. Zephaniah addresses this unique form of arrogance, namely those who don't take God seriously. We see it in verse 12. 
At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who, this is how he describes them, those who say in their heart, the Lord is not going to do good, he's not going to do ill. Who, people who live their lives as this, you know, God's not going to do anything good, he's not going to do anything bad. The word for complacent there is actually the term for dregs and wine. Something that just sits at the bottom, at the bottom of the bottle, that's, uh, at the bottom of the bottle or the glass, and is bitter, and you avoid drinking. Something that sits and does nothing. Laziness, complacency, is another side of arrogance. It's the belief that God's not going to do anything. He's not going to do anything good. He's not going to do anything bad. I didn't do anything wrong. He's not going to do anything right. And it's a costly underestimation of God. Idolatry and arrogance are the uh, marks of practical godlessness. What's that result in? Well, that's really what the book of Zephaniah is about. What's the result of practical godlessness? You see, what we did is we kind of surveyed some of the reasons, or the major reasons for God's judgment. What it was that brought judgment down on Judah and the surrounding nations. And it was their idolatry and it was their arrogance. And it was this, they were God's people in name only, but not in their hearts. They were practically, in their daily practice, godless. And I want to make this point about the judgment because we've talked about it a lot this semester. It's real and it's horrendous but at the same time God's judgment is actually just the logical conclusion of idolatry and arrogance. It's just the logical conclusion extended on into eternity. You see, we typically we analyze God's judgment kind of under this human-centered notion of what is fair and at first glance we react to it and it's, you know, how can, how can God judge like, this isn't fair. How can he do this? How can God punish people? If God is a God of love, how can, he, how can things like hell exist? How can judgment occur? And his punishment is grievous judgment, but his judgment is actually just the logical extension of idolatry and the logical extension of self-centered arrogance. To those who pursue and live for idols, they get what their idol can provide. Romans one twenty four, God says... Part of what he does in judgment is he just gives people over to their idols. If you live for a claim, accomplishment, moral reputation among men, whatever it is, people-pleasing comfort, sexual pleasure, whatever it is, and our, and our ability to create idols is so much more nuanced and subtle than just creating any list, whatever it is, you're going to get whatever your idol can provide for you. That's what God's judgment is. Maybe you'll have some fleeting moments of peace, right? Maybe something will go well for you for a little bit. Anything you can take hold of for a little bit, any kind of success in this life, you might get that. You really might. You'll get everything that you can take hold of from that idol. And the point is this. Because that's all that you lived for, that's all you get. Because that's what you rooted your life in, your life is staked to that. If you abandon the God of mercy the God of love, the God of life, those things won't be yours. If you live for the passing things of the world, that's precisely what you get. His judgment is real and it's grievous, but it's actually just the logical extension of what you want. It's not unfair. It's actually incredibly fair. See, ultimately, judgment is God granting you an eternity of self-absorbed, self-love, unfettered with nobody to uh, to intervene. C.S. Lewis actually calls hell the greatest monument to human freedom. 
God even grants you freedom from Himself. Jesus on the cross, when He bore the sins of God's people and endured that wrath, what did He say? He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hell is separation from God. When you bind yourself to an idol, when you don't want to have anything to do with God, that's actually exactly what He gives us. The great tragedy of idolatry is that the instinct in our life to live for something more is really our heart screaming for a God worthy of worship, a God who is holy and who is perfect and who can give us new life and give us grace and forgiveness, a God in whom there is love and there is acceptance and complete security. The tragedy of idolatry is that we use that longing to ask for so much less. And that's exactly what we get. What are you holding on to so tightly? What weak hope are you holding on to so tightly that you're too afraid of and maybe even too arrogant to let go of? God's judgment is reserved for those people who have asked of idols what only God can provide. And He gives them what they ask. So what's the solution? This is where Zephaniah gets a little upbeat, or even a lot upbeat. And I'm going to read those verses from chapter 3. For at that, I'm going to actually start in verse 8 to give you all context. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Verse 9, for at that time I'll change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord, serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, down in Egypt, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame, because the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For I will remove from your midst the proud, the exultant ones. You shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice. Speak no lies, nor shall they be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. They shall graze and lie down. None shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame, gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise, renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time, as the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. What is the solution to practical godlessness? It's God Himself. On the e, you see, the existence of Zephaniah's prophecy, Zephaniah's presence in Judah alone testifies the fact that God hasn't given up to His people. And this has come as a call to repentance to God's people. You see, in the worst moments, as Paul points this out in Romans, in the worst moment when God's done, He just gives people over. And He lets go. 
But what we have by the mere existence of the prophecy, but also in these beautiful words, is the fact that God is continuing to pursue his people. He's continuing to call them back to himself. He's pointing out the danger of idolatry, the emptiness of it, and the arrogance of it. And he's calling them back. And he's saying, don't you see what I have for you? The solution to practical godlessness is God himself. Verse, um, his love is such that it can't abide the desecration of that which is supposed to be beautiful. Namely creation, especially mankind. So when people to whom he's given his blessing for the purpose of blessing the world, when they've failed in that mission, when they've hijacked that mission, he brings their just desserts, but he always preserves a remnant and he always calls them back to repentance. God hasn't quit Verse 9 and 10 begin to reflect that mission, his persistence. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed one shall bring my offering. What he's picturing here in these verses is, again, is a gospel that actually goes out into the whole world. And in verse 9, we actually have these tiny sparks of Pentecost. See, in Acts, when, uh, when God when Jesus and, uh, um, sent out the apostles to start the church planting movement, when they started preaching on Pentecost, this weird thing happened where everybody started speaking in different tongues. We, everybody kind of familiar with that event? And they didn't just speak in gibberish or created tongues. They spoke in the languages of the surrounding nations. Just all of a sudden, they started speaking the languages of the surrounding nation. At that time, the surrounding nations, all of them could call upon the name of the Lord. See, in Pentecost, we have, the, in a lot of ways, the fulfillment of verse 9. And we see how God has instituted this plan to bring His gospel into the world. How does He do it? How does He resolve? How, how, um, how does He work His plan? He does it by putting away our shame. Verse ten, by cleansing us, by humbling us. If we said earlier arrogance is weakness, then truth strength is actually really humility, right? Because humility is actually setting aside all the awesomeness you think about yourself, all the better than you are that you feel, all deservedness you feel about yourself. Humility is setting aside all those things and knowing that when you encounter the Holy God in Scripture, our first response is not singing, I can feel your presence in this space, in this place, and raising our hands. Our first response is silence. When you encounter how high and mighty He is in Scripture, our first response is silence. When, when, in Romans 3, when Paul has done three chapters on the sinfulness of man and saying, this is how sinful man is, what it does is it just stops our mouths. There's no more justification. There's no more uh, justification for what we've done. There's no more denying it or excusing our behavior. When we really begin to encounter who God is, you stop making excuses. And for those who will then come, He offers forgiveness. And forgiveness is received in humility. Because forgiveness is the recognition. Forgiveness uh, and humility requires this, the recognition that when you approach God, you just can't say anything good about yourself. You can't say anything worthwhile to yourself. You have no excuse. You have nothing to offer Him. And your only hope is this. Maybe He's a merciful God. He is. And when we get that, it drives us into the holy living that He describes in verses 12 and 13. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice, speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. They shall graze and lie down. None shall make them afraid. You see, when we understand the love of God and how it comes into our life and its freeness, 
it draws us into the kind of living that we're all supposed to be living. You see, we look at the Ten Commandments like it's this burdensome, like, stuff I have to do but I don't really want to do. The law of God is successful and right and good living. It's the way a successful society and creation works. If we all worship the same God, if no one covets, if no one murders, if no one steals, if no one commits adultery, do you understand that's what Barack Obama is trying to bring in the world? That's what every administration is always trying to bring in the world, some kind of paradise, and we can't do it apart from God. The law is not this heavy-handed description of stuff we wish we could do but we're told not to. The law is beautiful, y'all. The law is how the world's supposed to work. And God loves us back into obedience toward it. If silence is our first response to encountering God, verse 14, we see what comes next. Our second response is song. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart. Daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. The true king reigns. He's not talking about Josiah here. He's talking about the Lord God on the throne in heaven. And you see, when a king who is limitless in power, who from Colossians we know actually holds together all of creation moment by moment, has that kind of power that he sustains all of creation, a God of limitless power and who's perfectly good, that means for those who are in him, there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear. doesn't mean life's easy. But there's nothing to fear. That in the hardness of life, there's still nothing to fear. The song goes on. I wish you could talk about all of it, but verse 17 is my favorite. The Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. See, the kind of redemption He's bringing in the world, God didn't, Jesus didn't just die for our sins so that we can kind of live this life where God tolerates us, but He's not really proud of us because of the way we continue to live. That's not the description of the way God thinks about us. Jesus didn't pay the price for our sins just so God could kind of tolerate us. This is what Scripture says. He rejoices over you with gladness. God sings and dances about the fact that you're His. That's what the text is telling us. Have you ever thought about that? God sings and dances about the fact that you're His. The ver- it keeps going, but get down to verse 20. At that time I will bring you in, at the, time together, at, uh, at the time when I gather you together, for I'll make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. He's painting again the picture that we've talked about all semester. This picture that everything's going to be made right. There's not going to be any more injustice. There's not going to be any more anxiety. There's not going to be pain. There aren't going to be any tears. There's not going to be any more abuse. There's not going to be any more addiction. There's not going to be any more death. You no longer have to fear that you're not going to measure up, that you won't be accepted for who you are. Um, you don't have to fear insecurity, that it's never going to work out, that you're never going to be happy, that you're never going to find a spouse, whatever it is. Creation gets made right. It gets made right at the cross when Jesus bears the sin. He bears the penalty for our idolatry and our arrogance, for our deep self-love. And when Jesus ascended to the throne, he bore that penalty on the cross and he ascended to the throne. And before he ascended to the throne, the last thing he did 
is he started a mission organization. He called his apostles and he called them to go out and plant churches. That's what he did at the beginning of Acts. It was the new mission organization, the new Israel, what Israel was always intended to be. And our beautiful calling now as God's mission organization is the same thing, to share the good news that there is a gracious king who sits on the throne that is full of grace, that is full of love and acceptance and security is to be had by anyone who wants it. But at the same time, God allows those who would have nothing of him to receive exactly what they want. So real quick final application. What is the solution to practical godliness, godlessness? The way to run from God's judgment is this, to run to Him. The most counterintuitive thing in the world, the way to run from God's judgment is to run to Him. What does it look like? It looks like this. It, likes bring, it looks like bringing all of our God's substitutes, all the idols, all the things, people, the hopes that you trust in, saying, bring it to God and saying, this is who I am. This is just who I am. I did my best and this is what I got and it's nothing. I've regarded you lightly, if at all. Can you still receive me? Is there forgiveness? Is there mercy for somebody like me? And because Jesus shed his blood for you, God sings and dances at your reception. Let's pray.